Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Good evening and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. You're with Talk, we're on TV, we're on radio, we're online and of course we're on your smart speaker as well. Coming up, Jeffrey Epstein's only living relative who's close enough to him makes the incredible claim that he was killed in prison in a blockbuster exclusive interview with Talk TV. Former post office boss Paula Vennels has finally said she will hand back the CBE after over a million people called for it in a petition. And the BBC Blunders Department continues, BBC Sport are alienating viewers like never before. Now, let's start tonight's show with that breaking news. In a Talk TV blockbuster exclusive, the brother of convicted paedophile financier Jeffrey Epstein told Talk TV he believes Epstein was murdered by a powerful contact with a vested interest in keeping him quiet. Mark Epstein is the only living relative of Jeffrey. Here's what he had to say. Well, first, the, the actual pathologist who did the autopsy uh, did not determine it was a suicide. They couldn't. They said it looked more like a homicide. But on the, death, on the initial death certificate, on cause of death, it said pending, meaning pending further investigation, which is proper. And then a few days later, you know, Bill Barr claims it was a suicide. And then the chief pathologist of New York, who did not see the body, claims it's a suicide. So the point, the question becomes, what investigating was done in a matter of days to make them come out with that determination. And it turns out that because it was called a suicide, there doesn't seem to have been an investigation. Because if you declare somebody died by suicide, there's really nothing to investigate. You know, the only questions about a suicide is how did they do it? Did they hang themselves? Did they shoot themselves? Did they jump out of a window? And that's a pretty obvious answer at the time of the death. So there's no investigation was done. The EMTs that went to the prison were never questioned. The hospital personnel were never questioned. We can't seem to find the medical records. We can't get the 911 call. If this was a suicide, why are all these things hidden? Why indeed are all these things hidden? It's a fascinating interview and we'll be looking into it and all the way through the show tonight. We'll be talking about it in more detail with Robert Jobson later on and you can catch the full interview with Mark Epstein at 11 o'clock tonight on Talk TV with Piers Morgan Uncensored. It's going to be a fascinating story and it isn't going away anytime soon. Well, let's get back to some domestic news because, oh yes, the classic jump-before-you-push tactic that his graced former post office boss Paula Venels is indeed handing back her CBE 
with immediate effect. It comes amid the fallout of the Horizon IT scandal, where she's, in quotes, truly sorry for the devastation caused to those wrongly accused and their families. Last night on this very show, we spoke with convicted sub-postmaster Vipin and his son Varchas Patel, who experienced dear Venel's devastation. My life literally went upside down. I lost friends. Um, I was at the time, at the material time of 2011, on a number of occasions, I was taunted, insulted by um, a couple of the parish councillors at the time. Yeah. It, it, it wasn't nice. On what on one occasion, um, one of the councillors at the material time said, um, "Well, made fun out of my dad by saying there's a for sale sign out outside the shop. Uh, your dad's not going to be able to survive um, uh, running the shop much longer because." Unfortunately, um, rumours started to spread in the village uh, straight away from uh, Dad's uh, suspension on the 8th of December, December. 2011. And um, he, Dad received some initial support, but there was also um, a cohort of people, literally, who wanted my father dead and they wanted to drive my father out of the village, Mum and Dad out of the village. They literally made our lives hell. Joining me in the studio, a couple of our panellists, Deputy Police Director of the Sun, Ryan Saby, and Conservative commentator Esther Kraku, of course, but also Paul Scully, Conservative MP, is here too. He's continuously fought for the victims. Paul, very good evening to you. Thanks for uh, joining us. Um, This story just kind of goes from bad to worse. I mean, every time I see a politician speaking about it, and I don't include you in this, but, you know, you just think to yourself, well, is that it? Is that all you've got to say? I know that many of you have been saying things for a long time. Yeah. Tell us your uh, version of events and, and, and what you've been saying. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm glad this is really back uh, firmly on the agenda. We had um, uh, a statement from the current Postal Affairs Minister, Kevin Holland, who's yeah. working really hard on this, just before Christmas, and it was near empty chamber. Right. Uh, yesterday, because of the drama, um, there's lots of politicians coming out, and that is nearly full. Mm. Uh, I don't blame them. It's what happens when you get the uh, you know a drama like that, that intensity, and it's just the same way it's engaged politicians, and the same way it's engaged members of the public, members of the media, and these kind of things. It's right that it's back in the public eye because we've got so much more to do mm. to put these people right as best we can mm. financially. You're never going to sort their lives out. Their lives are defined by this now. Yeah. Um, but I spent a couple of years trying to starting the inquiry after the court case that was featured in the drama, getting the compensation schemes up and running, they're still going now. Yeah. It's the best thing I'm ever going to do in politics, yeah. but, but it's still un- annoying and frustrating that it's still unfinished business. Yeah. Well, I'm going to ask you a bit about that because we've got, I think, Kevin Hollyrake today uh, making another statement talking about how uh, things are progressing. Let's have a look. Overturning their convictions is also key to unlocking compensation. Each person whose horizon conviction is overturned is entitled to an interim compensation payment of £163,000. They can then choose whether to have their compensation individually assessed or to accept an upfront offer of £600,000. See, one of the questions I've got, Paul, is why are there three schemes? I know it's probably far more complicated than than most of us could ever imagine, but it seems to me when you watch something like that, and as good as Kevin Hollyrake's statement may be, he's basically saying to people, look, you can get some money, but you've got to go through this process. It just seems still to be incredibly complex. It is complex, but the problem is they they were unrolled at different times for Mm. different reasons. So the first one was what they call the historic, well, it was originally called the historic shortfall scheme, now the Horizon shortfall scheme. And basically that was people who had 
lost out financially, but not necessarily convicted and right. weren't in that 555. And they were people sometimes that just chucked in the towel really, really quickly, right. still lost so much, uh, but lost financially. And that was easier to start and then the post office advertised it and they were able to say, you've lost that financially, this is how much you've lost, uh, plus a bit of damages, there you go. Right. Uh, still complicated, but it was, it was dealt with. You then had the people that have convicted, um, but the problem is you can't compensate, in inverted commas, criminals. So they have to have their conviction right. overturned first uh, and then they can go through that process. There's only 92 people out of the 700 plus, nearly nine, uh, between 700 and 900, we don't even know. Uh, that have actually overturned their convictions. And yeah. that's what Kevin was talking about, right. that we need to fight to. So that have a blanket, why people like the Patel family that we saw just <clears throat> yeah. there have had nothing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Varchus, uh, I've, I've, you know, I've exchanged messages over Twitter and he's been incredibly angry at times and frustrated and I totally understand why, because I've always said there's nothing I can say to him. Mm. We just got to act right. for him and his family. But the third lot are the 555 people, including Alan Bates, that took them took the post office to court yeah. in the first place because they have... Fun. And who won money in 2019. They, they won money, but most of that was swallowed up well, in legal fees because yeah. the postal post office outspent them and kept on trying to double up, double up, double up. And so because they'd had full and final settlement, government had to step in and get them to reopen the settlement. We had to go to their funders and say, right, we want you to agree not to take any more money. So there's just stupid little complexities and bureaucracy around that that we had to work our way through. Yeah. So that's how it sort of evolved over a period of time. Hence, we've ended up mm. with three streams. It's not right. ideal, but it's what we got. It is incredible, isn't it? Esther, um, <coughs> welcome to the show. And it's an incredible story, this. With every day that passes, you kind of can't quite believe that nobody's just fixing it. Yeah. I mean, the real scandal here is that the post office kept fighting it yeah, because totally. the post office admitted in 2013 that the, there, were, there were bugs with the, the, the software and that it had been fixed at the time, but there were still problems with it. And then six years down the line, that's when they finally settled for just under 60 million pounds, which I think is actually quite stingy. Mm, yeah. uh, and they're still, they're, they were, for six years, they were still fighting this instead of just raising their hands up and saying, actually, you know, we've made a mistake, let's compensate all of these families. I think the bigger frustration, because there's a tendency to go after the big wigs, you know, the Paula Venels and the Ed Davies, is, is, is to ignore the actual structural failures of a lot of our public institutions. Why do things take so long? Why, why are our public institutions so clunky and slow and inefficient? And it's because there's no way to expedite massive failures like this. There's such, you know, a massive hierarchy chain that you can't really fast track these things. So I think it's, 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 it's a spectacular failure, but it's not surprising. Nothing really gets done when the taxpayers yeah. pay that expense because there's no one that's really accountable. And Ryan Savey from The Sun, I mean, a spectacular failure, yes, but equally, an awful lot of the people who were involved in that spectacular failure re were rewarded for it and have still kind of involved uh, getting themselves further government contracts. Many of them um, are still making an awful lot of money from the government. Some of them from Fujitsu are still doing very well. You know, it seems as though there's an awful long line of people following on um, from the woman who's given her CBE back um, who ought to be giving something else back. Yeah, I, th I think with Fujitsu, there's a lot of government contracts mm. across the board when they're intertwined and you do wonder whether it will do more damage, more harm than good, actually, mm. by taking a lot of those contracts. Yeah. But perhaps there could be some sort of blanket ban from now on. Right. But on, you know, well, any, I heard, I mean, I think, involved. I think it was, was it the Independent this morning who had this story saying that they're now involved in flood alert contracts. Uh, which might explain quite a lot about why the, the place is underwater currently, you know, but, but it just seems incredible, doesn't it? Yeah, no, exactly. And you look at Ed Davey, the, yeah. Sir Ed Davey, they're now calling for, there are some people saying he should have that knighthood taken away. Yeah. If Paula Venables can have that CBE taken away, yeah. why can't Ed Davey? And it's become a good line of political attack yeah. for the Conservatives and the Tories to, to drag him into a scandal. Mm. He walks around calling for people to resign from their, yeah. from their yeah. post. 
And, you know, he's done that, you know, probably the best part but of 30 So I can't find anybody who can tell me why he got a knighthood. I mean, did he just get a knighthood for being leader of the Lib Dems? Is that how it Pro works? Probably. Look, I, yeah, I'm not going to attack him politically in terms of what he did or didn't do in 2010 because I don't have the information and I, I don't know what I'd have done given that well, situation. Well, his excuse is lied to him. But, I mean, surely if you Yeah, but, no, but yeah, that's not good enough. That's not good enough. It's not good enough. No, it's not good enough. The, the whole point, point the is whole... you speak to Alan Bates, yeah. you speak to the other people right. and actually then weigh up what you've, what you've got. If you're only taking one, one view... Yeah then of course you can say what you want 10 years later. But I think Ryan had uh, hit it on the head when he said the fact that Ed is actually always the first person yeah. to want to recall Parliament, to mm. have a go at everything, and don't look at the... De they never do detail. Mm. Uh, it's always just, yeah, resign, 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 and then... Look at this. And I think, you know, the whole kind of this, this fixation on, oh, this person must resign, this person must resign, you ignore the bigger issue. Right? This, this didn't just fall on the shoulders of one person. This right. was something that happened well over a decade. Yeah. It's an institutional failure. How do you how do you change the institution so that this doesn't happen right. again? Well, I was watching just this afternoon um, um, a video a package of Tony Blair introducing yeah. um, the whole system, you know, with Gordon Brown to his right and Alistair Darling to his left and, you know, the Labour front bench looking very sort of technocratic and saying we've got this brand new system coming in, it's going to be great, it's going to be terrific. You know, it goes all the way back to, to, to that Labour government. And so, you know, it's not about party political allegiance, really, is it? There's, there's it's about a kind of seismic it. failure of anybody to ask a question. There's three parties that have, that have overseen this, and include the Conservatives, obviously, in, in that in the last few in the, in, the, in the last few years. Um, so it's not a party political thing, but it is systemic, is exactly as you say. And crikey, those of us that remember back 20 years that we're using it, computers for anything, yeah. remember how buggy software can be. So why would this be any right. any different? It is about asking questions. If you bought, if you bought a faulty car, if if, if, if manufacturers yeah. release faulty cars that people bought, and then they suffered an accident or something like that, that's a class action mm. lawsuit immediately, mm. right? Whereas the, that that version for, for for Fujitsu and this this dodgy software, at least on on the government side. Well, I think what's what we're doing now, the statutory inquiry that I started um, uh, a few years back, is still going on. Why? Because there's a load of documents mm. that keep getting disclosed yeah. uh, to you know by the post office and others to to the uh, the chairman, uh, and that's there's thousands of pages that's right. got to go through. So it's delaying it by months and months and months. So, but that will start to get the answers that we're all looking for, yeah. and then you can get the accountability. That's when you get the justice. I think it so was get a bit the compensation. Now, when, um, justice yeah. a bit later. But presumably, there will be people making calls to these compensation, um, you know, kind of offers who will be told, well, if you accept 600,000, that'll be it. You won't be able to come after us any longer because there'll have to be legal sort of positions well, limit, limit set out, right? As well. And that again is is kind of a disservice. You need to, you need to I'm, throw I'm life not changing. You for no, you need to throw life changing money at these people. These people, oh, their, their lives are now defined by this. Yes. Yeah. You know, there are lots of people with PTSD, with mental health problems, with eating disorders. Their family's broken down. Uh, they've lost family. Some people have been chased out of the country. Right. Uh, so you cannot. Do, we cannot do enough. No, of course. Sure but from what Kevin Hollenbroek's saying, though, he's saying that you will either accept the statutory 600,000 or you might take another decision. Again, that's putting an awful lot of pressure on people to say, all right, do you want to try and get, you know, see how you do... Welcome, come on I think down. You might or, get a or, or, tie it up in the or you might not. I think it's good intentions because he's trying to get money out quickly. But uh, but I, you know, as I say, I think you do need to throw life I mean, after, money out. Yeah, after twenty years of getting nothing and getting, grand and getting is not stonewalled by by everyone you spoke to, mm. suddenly you're being told here's six hundred thousand, or maybe you'd like to take your chance and, get, and win a million. It's not really the way to do it. Is no, it? I shouldn't be gambling. Like I mean, that. I think one of the frustrations, because we all know that a lot of our public services are run in a very clunky and inefficient way, but one of the frustrations is why does there have to be national outrage before something is done? 
that that's that is mm. I mean it's unfortunate that when the, the case was uh, sort of wrapped up it was just before COVID happened so the national attention was elsewhere but whenever something like this happens you really have to have the whole country just being infuriated by it for anything to happen yeah. I think to be fair no stuff is happening what this is doing though uh, as I say it's well it's also giving Kevin I think a little bit of levers within government and elsewhere to say look I've been working on this for a couple of years as I was a couple of years before that mm -hmm. but to Treasury number 10 whoever he needs to say say look the country is watching. Yeah. We've got to do this. So I think it's giving him a lot of power. So, the, so I'm glad. I'm glad we're talking about it still now, and I hope we're talking about it for days to come. Because you know what? When we're talking about things like Israel and Gaza, we're not talking about Ukraine. We're not talking about yeah. Yemen before that. We're not talking about Burma before that. People can only tend to deal with one big crisis mm -hmm. at a time yeah. with big pictures, emotive videos dramas like this. Yeah. It's really important that we keep this on the front foot until we get it sorted. Yeah, absolutely right. Adam Crowes is an interesting one as well because he doesn't get a mention in the ITV drama. Strangely enough, um, he used to run ITV. wonder how that happened. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's true. Like, I mean, I think to be fair, and I don't really know that, I, th I, I suspect it's more the fact that Adam Crozier was not uh, as integral a part of the drama series mm. as, as you know in, in terms of where he was at the time where right. horizon was at the time than than the conspiracy but mm. i can understand why people are asking that question yeah and i mean as far as the people who made the series are concerned and, and the, the, the people who who are now saying it's one of the great sort of uh, commissioned pieces of drama that's ever been done in britain um have you had any dealings with them? Have they, did they come to anybody in Parliament to ask them anything about, you know, what to base the storylines on or, you know, well, have, they, have they represented yeah. anything? In Parliament, yeah. My partner, I was watching it with my partner and she said, um, God, that person that's playing Nazim Zahawi, it's an incredible likeness of him. Yes. It was, it was him. <laughs> and there he was. Uh, he spent half a day, I think, learning his lines that he'd said um, uh, uh, yeah. know, a few years before. I'm sure he had a lot of fun that, that. But actually, he, he, did, he did much better in the post office scandal um, at playing himself because he actually looked far more believable than he ever did <laughs> uh, when he was in the government. But no, he did. Yeah. They, they covered, um, so they had him in, they had uh, Nick Wallace, the journalist that's been yeah. covering this diligently for, for many, many years now. It's almost his life's work. He was the chief consultant on it. So right. they had a lot of, she was, um, so uh, Gwyn Hughes that wrote it, spent three years mm. uh, researching this, yeah. speaking to all the postmasters. It was quite intense. It's incredible. That's how you get to the public, right? You create a drama totally. around it for someone to watch it. Totally. <laughs> I mean, she's created this sense of urgency, hasn't she, in government? Yeah. They are now. You just you just feel it amongst you know all the different departments. They are trying to create this blanket yeah. overhaul of those convictions. Yes. And you feel like there's news just mm. days away before they're actually coming. And to I some do. Solution. I mean, I do actually have some sympathy with those who say that the reason it took this long is because it is a complicated story. And it is, yeah. I mean, I've listened to, to, to Jake talking about, um, you know, some of the, the difficulties of getting it into the sort of mainstream yeah. of the BBC. You know, I mean, we had the guy from Computer Weekly here last night and he said he's been waiting since 2009 yeah. for the BBC to lead with it. And finally they led with it last night, you know, since 2009, because it's not a particularly sexy story. It's not a particularly easy story to understand or to tell. There's very lots, there's lots of layers and complications and all of that. And it's not a soundbite story. No, most people, you know, most uh, commissioners and editors, if you say that you try to bid in for something from Computer Weekly, mm. they're like yeah. that. But, you know, but they've done amazing work. Computer Weekly have done really diligent, careful work right. on a really technical mm. uh, issue here, which most of us, even now, when you're watching Monica Dolan, who played Joe, Joe Hamilton, sitting there agog at the figures going up, it's almost unbelievable. You needed that sort of um, thing at the beginning that said, this is a true story. You yeah. almost needed yeah. that every advert break to because uh, it was so full but on. But the other bit I think we need to not forget is not just that there was, you know, um, 
negligence and there was people who overlooked things and they weren't convincing enough at the time or they didn't look hard enough. There was also quite malicious intent from some of the people working from the post office side who were terribly um, badly treating some of the people that had worked for them for many, many years and who convinced them all that literally nothing else was happening anywhere else. It was only them that was having a problem. Mm. You know, they lied to them and they and they treated them terribly. And that, I think, can't be forgotten. With contempt. Yeah, I, I mean, I think one of the things that have been ha have been highlighted with this is the fact that there was almost confirmation bias because mm. before this software was, it was rolled that, out, exactly. people believed that, you know, they were, they were effectively nicking money from the, the post office. And so when this glitch happened with the software, it was like, aha, we found you, we've, we've, we've figured you out. So there was a, a, almost a reluctance to actually investigate a potential glitch with the software because it confirmed all their biases. So, of course, they were going to treat these people with contempt because they already thought that they were stealing from yeah. the post office anyway. They but believed you... that. That's the thing that I find astonishing. Because journalists like Ryan, you were you know, saying there were people that are looking at this and then suddenly they get arrested, they get convicted. You're going to sit there and thinking, mm. if you don't really understand the detail behind it, you're going to think, oh, well, there's no smoke without fire. That's yeah. probably what's going, to, going on. So it's, it's. But you're right, Esther, when you were talking about... Um, you know, public services, big organisations and these kind of things. There was definitely groupthink. There was yeah, definitely absolutely. just defaulting to brand reputational ma management rather than mm. forgetting these are human and beings. hierarchical human structures cost. just yeah. completely It's really bad. This is, we, we've, we've, asked we've people, got to be human beings first, politicians second. It's all about human cost here. Well, it is. And we've asked people who they think is ultimately responsible. Angela says the post office and parcel force should be put out of business and the job given to a company like DHL or somebody else with no involvement from the government. Venel should also hand back the millions she made as severance pay. A lot of people saying that as well. That she did quite well out of this particular also, job. She did very well afterwards. Got lots of... You and got some other directorships. She well. got an NHS trust, I think, at one point. She was nearly made a bishop yeah. by old um, uh, Archbishop Justin, Wokeby. Yeah. You know, he wanted to make her a bishop, for heaven's sake. But surely so, someone... <laughs> the horror. Some, yeah, I know. <laughs> surely someone at the post office or Fujitsu should have said, well, actually, there may be some cases every year which are investigated, but it's just spiked. Yeah. You know, two, three hundred cases, you know, every year. That can't be no. right. Unbelievable stuff. Absolutely incredible. Thank you, guys. We'll come back to you uh, coming up a little bit later on the show. Right now, though, you're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. And you better stay watching because crafty old Keir Starmer has a dark past. He's been defending baby killers and axe murderers, would you believe? Meanwhile, his party is pushing the government to spill the beans on the Rwanda policy. Does anybody know what it is? We'll be back later. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Labour will try to force the government to publish a string of documents relating to its Rwanda policy. The party will table a vote demanding ministers disclose exactly how much it would cost to send each asylum seeker to Rwanda. The vote will also demand that ministers reveal the cash set to be given to the African country. To give us his take on all of this is former Labour Party advisor under Tony Blair's government, Mr John McTiernan. John, welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. We are, as you can see, in slightly more yeah. salubrious um, surroundings. <laughs> We're preparing, of course, for the next Labour government, so we thought we'd better change the colours to red yeah. uh, instead of blue. I presume, <laughs> I presume you would approve of that. Definitely, totally approve of that. <laughs> um, now, listen, I, I'm all in favour of asking the government tough questions, all in favour of finding out uh, what yeah. their Rwanda policy will cost us, but do you think there's anybody there that knows the answer? Uh, well, there definitely are papers, and we know from the BBC that um, uh, there's quite a lot of um, Treasury documents from when Sunak was uh, the Rishi Sunak was the Chancellor of the Exchequer, where he was asking those questions, and we assume, uh, from what I've read, uh, the Treasury actually made some calculations 
uh, and tried to force down the costings. And I think that there were there were bids from number ten for hundreds of millions to be spent, and so that um, uh, you know, so thousands of people could be sent over to Rwanda. So I do think it's fair that we get all the details out there, particularly because um, it would probably add uh, something to the fire that's that's there between the different wings of the Tory Party who are fighting over whether this should be more liberal or less liberal. Yeah. So. That's the gaiety of nations, doesn't it? Well, it does. I mean, I'm not one of those people that thinks that the Rwanda policy was a complete and utter failure and a complete and utter disaster. My belief was that it would work if they'd actually ever implemented it. I'm just now worried that it will never be implemented. Oh, look, I don't think it will be implemented. And in, in, in a funny kind of way, I don't think it was ever intended to be implemented. The policy that um, Rishi keeps talking about, which he says has been successful, uh, of talking to Albania, I mean, that's been successful because essentially, as far as one can work out, um, they're paying the Albanian government to do the policing in Albania, yeah. to not let people come to, to the UK. Um, nobody comes here from Rwanda. Um, and I don't think anybody really believes with a backlog of 100,000 that there's much chance of them being one of the 300 people ever being sent to Rwanda. So deterrence isn't the issue. The issue is processing. And for those uh, two out of 10, three out of 10 people who don't get asylum and refugee status in the UK, deciding quickly and sending them home their home country yeah. quickly. Also, as far as I understand it, most of the people who are being returned to Albania are people who have been found guilty of crime in this country um, and who are being deported, as opposed to people who have just kind of tipped up on uh, some beach in Dover, uh, said they're from Albania, and are now suddenly going back. Yeah, look, there's definitely, there's definitely something going on in Albania. I once met a guy who told me his party, the party he'd been working for in Albania, had come third in the election. I said, why? He said, oh, they had the third smallest wheat farms. Um, <laughs> so there's definitely something going on in Albania. Well, which apparently is they've, got, they've got some very nice um, beach resorts in Albania now, which are all being you built and, and funded um, by quite a lot of the illegal drug money that they're making out of uh, the rest of Europe. There's, there's, some there's some lovely, lovely beaches on the other side of the Adriatic from, from Italy and Montenegro a country I know well has got some fantastic places and it doesn't have the same uh, history of those being built in the way you're saying about Albania. So right. go Montenegro. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what do you reckon, though, is Keir Starmer's view of the Rwanda plan? Because I have to say, as much as he's kind of, you know, edging mm. ever closer to um, getting his uh, curtains fitted for Downing Street, I'm still not really sure what his immigration policy actually is. On, on, on Rwanda, he's, he's actually said he wouldn't do it. Um, and it's not a solution. And I think that's right. Uh, we've spent, you know, sent, spent £300 million, I think, so far, and managed to send three different Home Secretaries to Rwanda, but no no in, individuals at all. Yeah, unfortunately, um, they all came back. Yeah, that's true. That's you know. true. But, yeah, but, I mean, in terms of, I mean, we've heard some Labour MPs talking about, um, you know, offshoring it and talking about uh, having processing centres set up in France. But, again, it's all stuff that you can say which the government has already said, but which is yeah, much, so more, much the, more easier to say than to do. Yeah, no, no, you can, you can unpack it a tiny bit so that um, there, there, there was offshore application by, U, by Ukrainian refugees. They got processed really quickly. Um, I think it would be really good if the Afghan people who worked for our troops uh, in Afghanistan, who are now stranded in Pakistan, if there was some offshore processing there in Pakistan, enabling them and their families to come to the UK, people who risked their lives uh for british troops i think that would be a thing and I, I can imagine a way in which you could actually give documentation to allow some people to travel safely to britain so they can then be and you know seven out of ten eight out of ten people who apply for refugee status in the uk get it so it's wrong to make those people 
take a risky boat crossing to pay the people tra traffickers when you could either process them in, in France or bring them over. I think, yes, the devil is in the detail, but the issue is speed, isn't it? It's the speed with which you do this. Do it speedily, do it fairly, and have returns and have people enter the labour market as quickly as possible. That's the best way to stop the, the cost being borne by taxpayers and to actually make it fairer for the people who want to come to Britain. Because I will say... The people who want to come to Britain normally have a connection, Afghanistan, Somalia, uh, the Kurds, people, you know, we they're coming to Britain because we went to their countries and they believe in something about Britain. They believe we're a great country. They want to come here. I'm uh, not sure, that's true. I think I'm not sure that. that's true. I mean, it may be true in some cases, but the problem is that we're currently paying for people to be put up in hotels, not only in Britain, but also in Pakistan, because we're paying the price for that. And there's an awful lot of people coming out of Afghanistan without papers, we don't really know who they are. Nobody knows who they are. And that's the other problem. And all the talk of processing centres never actually explains what would happen to those who fail to seek asylum and, and get it. Because if you fail asylum, what happens then? And that's the other problem. Because well, at the you, moment, if, yeah, you, so fail, you, if you fail the asylum process, you just hang around for a bit longer and have another go. No, you have to have, No, you don't, actually. You have to have a returns. Under Tony Blair, we had a, a returns process. Yeah, but process we don't have it now, though. No, we don't. No, I, I know we don't. Unfortunately, we don't have Tony Blair now. Um, well, know, thank we, God for we, that. We, I mean, he did we, enough we, trouble. I mean, it's partly Tony Blair's problem that all these refugees are coming from the Middle East in the first place after he went and started blowing up Iraq. I don't know if you were in favour of that. Uh, I was in favour of the Iraq War. I was in favour of a war against fascism. Yeah. Yeah, well, you can't you can't put the two things separately though, because as a result of that, the Middle East is still burning and is still on fire. Not all Tony Blair's fault. I give you, I give you that. But the process, the have but, a the, role. but the process, yeah, but hang on, the process started then, and all of the people who come here from those countries are coming here as a result of the state that the Middle East is in. To be honest, the process start the process started after the First World War when the Western powers carved up the Ottoman Empire, and a lot of it goes back to then. So um, we don't want to debate history now, but I think there's a long history of bad mistakes by European countries yeah. in the Middle East. And we actually have to, we have to, no, we have to work hard to sort it all out, I think. Uh, there is, but I mean, like, a bit like the, um, the Horizon scandal, everybody has to take uh, a little bit of blame. I mean, I've just been watching this afternoon, I was saying, Tony Blair announcing yeah. it in the House of Commons and saying how great it was going to be for the post office and the modernisation of Britain. And that hasn't worked out so well either. No, look on the on on the post office. There was there's been a long process of, across all governments of trying to make the post office make money to stop losing money. Mm. The post office has got a, a big place on the high street and a big place in people's hearts, but it has been losing money for such a long time. Uh, and the Royal Mail has been been doing the same. And the attempt to get a modernised uh, system in place was the right thing to do. Managing uh, managing this contract. It looks to me from outside, because I wasn't involved in any of it at, at all when I was working with Tony, and, and most of the stuff has been done under the, the coalition government, the, the, all the prosecutions. But it looks to me as though nobody is taking it to Fujitsu. They're the people who ran the software. They're the people I know from people I know who, who, who worked uh, ministerial, like Ed Davey asking the civil servants and them asking the post office. I know from people in the post office. The, the, you, they go, but they took the complaints to Fujitsu, and Fujitsu said nothing's wrong here. There's nothing wrong, uh, and they're going. Can you? You know, they're saying there's nothing wrong with our code. There's nothing wrong, and and I kind of think there needs to be, and there is an inquiry going on at the moment, isn't there? We're in the middle of an inquiry. Something needs to be done about how do you open the black box of software when the software provider goes, there's nothing wrong.
Um, and that kind of accountability... Well, when it starts to go wrong, I would say, then, that's generally the first clue. Uh, that's when you go, actually, maybe it's not working terribly well and there's an awful lot of people who are saying the same thing's happening. But let me give you one final opportunity to um, uh, to preach to me because I see that you've been doing it on Twitter. Uh, you're going to tell of me course. why it's a good idea to save people from the death penalty, even if they're completely horrific individuals uh, who live in a country where the death penalty actually is a penalty. Because, like, because I'm like Britain uh, as a whole. You know, Britain doesn't have a death penalty. I don't think there should be a death penalty uh, in the in the countries of the Caribbean where Keir campaigned successfully to get that lifted. Because those countries had people who had to appeal to Britain, and British courts had to say, um, no, a mandatory death penalty is either constitutional or unconstitutional. It is right to remove a mandatory death penalty. In many of the countries. Where, where, where Keir worked in, is the mandatory death penalty. Well, no, but he not didn't often. work there, did he? he no, went I mean, there they, they, they they've got a death penalty, uh, but they don't have a mandatory one now. And I think it, like, all that Keir did was save people from the death penalty. And we know the miscarriages in the, U in the UK. Had we had a mandatory death penalty, the Birmingham Six would have been executed. And that would be a massive... Oh, yeah, but you can't talk about hypotheticals, John. You know, the fact is, no, is that, that Keir Starmer... Hang on. Keir Starmer paints himself as a man who defended people... Uh, because he defended anyone who was put in front of him. He specifically went to do this, right? No, no, no. So now you're changing the narrative to say, no, oh, no, no, he doesn't, no, no. He doesn't defense, mind defending... Hang on, you're now saying that he's changing the narrative because he's now I going defense. to change the laws in another country, which no, is not really any of his business to do, well, because, because he doesn't like the death penalty. No, no, it's definitely the UK's business when it's the joint council of the Privy Council of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, which is the final appeal court in those countries. Of course, you should be removing the mandatory death penalty in those in those countries. And as a defence lawyer, uh, as a as a barrister, you do there the cab rank rule applies that you take the case that come to you. As a moral campaigner who wants to see the death penalty removed, the mandatory death penalty removed, I'd like to see the death penalty removed in China, uh, in Russia. Uh, in the United States Well, of let's, let's see if Keir Starmer's going to campaign for that. Well, is he going to campaign for that if he becomes Prime Minister? Is he going to go and well, meet with President Xi and say, you should well, do away with the death penalty? No. You know that all British Prime Ministers since 1965 have been proponents of the Global Treaty, uh, which we get more and more signatories to uh, over the decades, which is a total abolition of the death penalty. They're not just, uh, as our country, well, other countries. Well, you can sign lots of papers if you want. They've, they've actually signed How's that working out? forever. And we do want to get that. We want to see that in all the countries that still, still yeah. maintain the death Well, I would suggest that Keir Starmer issue. should spend more time uh, making sure that this country is a safe place for people to live and they're not going to be likely to be attacked by somebody who went around burying his two-year-old stepchild alive. I think that would be something that people would care more about than what the hell's going on in Jamaica. Yeah, but the issue that Keir was involved in was saying there should not be a mandatory death sentence. You don't, we're not saying we're for or against people who get convictions for murder or that there should not be convictions for murder in those countries. It's simply that the death penalty is wrong, it's utterly wrong, and it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be in a civilised country. And definitely uh, countries shouldn't have a mandatory death penalty which, which, in which the appeal mechanism is to... Privy councillors in the UK, the Joint Council, the Privy Council. Well, listen, it's I should a, look forward to. I should look forward to. I should look forward to Keir Starmer's future pronouncements on China's death penalty, Russia's death penalty, and the death penalty in some states of the United States. Well, I think you'll find he's against it. I think he, I think oh, you'll well, find really? he's against the death penalty wherever it is, mm. the democracy or dictatorship. Okay. Well, yeah, but is he going to travel there and get it reversed? No, that's the difference. John, listen, thanks he's for talking like, to he, us. He did this before he was an MP. As yeah, you I know. know, as you know I know that, but you know, you can judge a man. You can judge a man by the company he keeps and what he's done in his past. 
And I think that's well, what people are going to do. Me, so you can and judge I think, him highly for that. And I, I think, and I think you can quite rightly say, John, um, that people should be able to judge Keir Starmer by what he's done in his past. And if he wishes to defend it, that's Look, I think the revelation of all of this is, do you know what? Turns out Keir Starmer's a liberal left lawyer. Who knew? Yes. That's well, thank God, thank God rip, somebody's rip, finally admitted it. Rip, thank rip, God rip, somebody's rip, finally admitted it. Rip rubber mask off face and reveals... Yeah, there you go. John, John McTillard, you heard it here first. So Keir Starmer is a liberal lefty lawyer. There you go. So he can't complain about being called that anymore. Uh, thanks very much indeed. You're watching The Independent Republican, Mike Graham. Do not go anywhere because BBC Sports hemorrhaging viewers with its clueless decisions, including, according to Des Lynham, its choice of talent. We'll be taking aim at them next. Right now, BBC Sport is in a form slump akin to Derby's one-win Premier League season. The corporation's been pinballing from problem to problem, including its lack of control over Gary Lineker's social media accounts and its disastrous revamps of shows like Football Focus and A Question of Sport that have totally alienated viewers. So take a look at some of the BBC's disastrous decisions. I'm joined by Ali Ross, TV critic from The Sun, uh, with apologies to you, Ali, for uh, bringing up Derby instead of finding some much more obscure Scottish reference in football. But, you know, uh, they're not playing a blinder, yeah. are they, BBC Sport? No, they're not, Mike. <laughs> uh, when we were watching television back in the 70s, they, yeah. they had access to all the great sporting events and they also had great professional broadcasters yeah. like Desline and Frank Boff. And now they've got neither of those two things, which wouldn't be an insurmountable problem in itself. But they've, they've also got this obsessive desire to hit a youth audience allied to the fact he's been captured by the, by the woke tendency. Mm. And it's, it's fatal for, the, uh, for sports broadcasting because in, in, instead of getting the best and the best sports, you get this very skewed version uh, of, this, of football that, that, uh, that isn't even the priority for them now. It's the agenda that, that is put before the actual sport. Yeah. And it's, it's fatal for shows like a question of sport, which has had to be shelved. And I think probably football focus will go next. But you, you've also saw recently what it did to sports personality of the year, where which used to be a fun event. It was yeah. kind of awkward and cheesy. But you, you had Alex Scott quoting Mayor Angelou at the end of a 12-minute <laughs> segment on the Lionesses. Yeah, who does she play you, for? I mean, what's the point, you know? <laughs> yeah, Doncaster Bell's left back, I think yeah. she was. Like, this is the thing. And, I mean, they, also the piece that I was reading today, which, which was quoting quite a lot of Des Lynham's um, wisdom on this matter, and whatever you may think of Des oh. Lynham, he was fantastic as a broadcaster. Um, one of the greatest ever broadcasters. Yeah. Right. Tremendous. You, you he listen just, when he speaks. Exactly right. And he said, like, like many people, that the BBC made massive errors like getting rid of uh, Sue Barker, um, like trying to just hire people who are good sports people rather than good broadcasters. And they reminded us, basically, of when uh, Sports Personality of the Year back in 1988, when Ben Johnson had been done uh, for taking drugs in Seoul. By, by coincidence, I actually chased him down um, the JFK Expressway in New York uh, in I'm a car. I'm guessing you didn't catch him. I like... didn't catch him, no, but I was in a taxi and he was in a car. Um, but they presented Linford Christie uh, with a cup of ginseng tea as he walked onto the stage. <laughs> Uh, which, of course, had been the reason why Linford Christie had failed a drug test, because he said he'd had some ginseng tea. Just funny. I mean, yeah. you're laughing at the, the memory of it. it. It's fantastic. You just wouldn't get that anything no. that day. 
before, would you? It's 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 a bit cheesy, but it's it's also really left field. Yeah, and and it's it's putting the issue front and center. But the problem with people like Alex Scott uh, is she's not a trained journalist, so she'd never ask the right question. No. It would, something like that would never occur to her. No, and you've now got BBC Sport dominated clearly by Gary Lineker, and we talked the other week about the Wayne Rooney tweet, which BBC Sport put out, just sort of making fun, rather, you know, benignly, I thought, of Wayne Rooney getting oh. fired from Birmingham, getting him dressed up as a Peaky Blinder. I mean, they could have done worse. And Gary Lineker orders them to take the tweet down. They now take the I, tweet down. Yeah, it, it's the tail wagging the dog. Lineker yeah. is out of control. I'm assuming, I'm also hoping, they're going to put him out to grass after the Euros in the summer. Yeah. Um, because this, this situation can't continue where one guy clearly considers himself bigger than the whole uh, of the BBC, mm. and they've kind of taken him at his word right. and, uh, and, and played along as if he is. Um, well, it's almost it's, as though there's people sitting in the BBC going, oh, my God, what if Gary leaves? What will we do then? Mm. You know, we'll have nobody. Well, the other thing about all these sportsmen term presenters is they can only do one thing. Yeah. Ga Ga Gary Lineker is not a multitasker. If you gave him rugby or golf or yeah. anything, he'd flounder. If you Take a great pro like Jim Rosenthal, give him any sport, yeah. even motor racing, which he didn't know anything about. I think he'd be the first to admit before he did it. Right. And within two weeks, because he's a trained journalist and a broadcaster... Mm. He is the master of that subject. Lineker just can't do that. No. So I'm not sure why they're so besotted with the guy. Yeah, I don't know either because I think there must be just some ludicrous kind of, um, sort of almost homage that they feel they have to pay because he was this great player for England. I mean, he wasn't really even that great for England. I know that, you know, he was a successful footballer and he went and played in, in, in Barcelona and he went and played in Japan <laughs> and he's a very smart guy and all of that for a footballer, but a smart guy for a footballer, basically. Yeah, yeah, that's like having the, the best body mass index at the World Darts Championship, isn't it? <laughs> exactly right. Um, or the one-eyed man in the land of the blind, as we sometimes mm. say. But, I mean, do you think... I mean, I do wonder whether they've already told him they're going to have to let him go at the end of this year, at the end of the season, and he's just kind of finessing it somehow. Yeah, he, he just does seem to be out of control. And it's, it's the ingratitude of it, because the BBC took him when he was a very raw... Yeah. Uh, and broadcast is too grand a term for what he was, and persisted with him, as they're doing with Alex Scott now, and turned him into something. He's, he's, he's not a great broad... He's not up there with Jeff Stelling or anyone no. like that. He, he can do the job. and But now he's he seems intent on sacrificing the whole BBC for his own ego yeah. and, and his political agenda, which probably matches the political agenda of a lot of people at the BBC, but it defies the whole purpose of the BBC, which is to be neutral. Yeah. If you haven't got that, you it, it, it ceases to have a point. No. I mean, if they can't even do sport neutral, I mean, I'm afraid, you know, the game is up, it would seem. Yeah. Um, Ali, good to see you. Thank you very much indeed. Ali Thank Ross, you, uh, the Sun's TV critic on the woeful state of BBC Sport. It really is in a bad way and it ain't getting any better. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Now, pick up your phones because I want to talk to you right here after the break. 0344 499 1000. Also, the police have failed to stop gangs armed with axes from stealing thousands of pounds. How on earth do we fix lawless Britain? We'll be back after this.
Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Now, it's time for Taking the Mic. Now, we regularly report on the state of lawless Britain here on the Independent Republic, but tonight I've got a story for you that will shock even the most hardened viewers and listeners to Talk TV who are used to hearing terrible tales from the UK streets. That's right, it'll scare the pants off you. A gang of brazen and violent thugs has just been jailed for 54 years after a terrifying reign of terror that operated in the West Midlands, which was finally ended when they were caught last year. The gang carried out violent assaults on shoppers and staff in a variety of locations around West Bromwich and Birmingham using hammers, knives and even an axe. You can see them here. They attacked arcades, a travel agent, various retail outlets as well, in a crime spree where they targeted cash-rich businesses and made off with thousands of pounds. They took hostages, they terrified innocent shoppers and customers and operated with impunity in the area for almost a year, breaking into safes, stealing getaway cars and demanding cash from anyone who got in their way. Just dreadful. It was only thanks to a team of dedicated detectives, some brave eyewitnesses and a lot of CCTV footage that this reign of terror has finally come to an end. But the Wild West nature of these attacks has brought a sharp focus onto how dangerous our streets have now become. Owning a business which is open to the public is about as hazardous as it can get. Only this week we heard how employees of the Tube in London feel powerless to stop the thousands of fair dodgers, anti-social youth and violent offenders they're having to deal with on a daily basis. Over Christmas, Hyde Park Corner Station became a battle zone as more and more hordes of lawless individuals crowded through it to get to the attraction rather famously known as Winter Wonderland. They tell of how there are rarely any police to help out, but on the occasions when they do turn up, they're often overwhelmed by the sheer scale of the numbers. Each and every day, there are new and more shocking videos of violence and lawlessness from all around the country. Today, I saw thugs attacking a parked car outside a pub in Wakefield, smashing windows and severing wing mirrors with machetes before being chased off and punched by customers. Are we really willing to put up with this violent and lawless state of affairs? Is London to be turned into a version of New York in the 1980s where I lived, where gangs of robbers would routinely steam through subway trains, punching and robbing passengers at will? Entire parts of the city became no-go areas and business people were too terrified to open up shops in many neighbourhoods. Manhattan was a toxic and dangerous place for tourists and pretty soon they stopped coming. Our cities are going the same way. Thank goodness the West Midlands Police had a win this week and jailed these animals that preyed on so many innocents. But we've got a long way to go, ladies and gentlemen, and someone needs to sort it out. Now, lots of you have been getting in touch, as I asked you to. You can have your say on all the socials at Talk TV and on the phones, of course, 0344-499-1000. Let's go to John, who's in Newcastle, wants to talk about the NHS. Hello, John. Hello, Mike. How are you doing, sir? Um, yes, the NHS, 50 years ago, to cut the story short, through a friend I met his aunt, hospital, she was in there for three weeks, three weeks' wait yeah. for an operation. Back here in Newcastle, uh, I knew a nurse at the top of the street... Uh, spoke to her, it was 13 to 15 weeks. Yeah. I realised then that I wasn't in the best health service in the world. No matter what the Tories or Labour or the Liberals more or less mentioned over the It's decade. not going to get any better either, is it, really? Well, well, it's, no, I, and now I believe it should be privatised because our people, are, uh, seven and a half million at least now, are waiting for operations. Yeah. 
They cannot afford it. They, they are borrowing money, uh, quite a lot of them. Not all of them, of course, but a lot of money. Uh, they're borrowing money which they'll afford, no doubt, under these circumstances that we'll have today uh, for a private uh, operation. And I can only think that in France, uh, where it is private, but the system is so far superior to ours. Yeah. It's something like that of the Swiss. And of course, but well, the Swiss I mean, as almost any NHS um, uh, person will tell you, if you go to any other country in the world, they don't do what the NHS does. Nobody yes. copies the NHS. It's not the best and system in the world. It never was the best system in the world. And when you look at and the uh, middle are... management, yeah. the middle management, uh, 3,000 of them getting £100,000 a year. I know. That's... It's nonsense. Absolute nonsense. Listen, management... John, I've got to let you go because we've got to run. But thank you for your call. You're watching The Independent Republican, Mike Graham, and you're about to watch a whole lot more. In the next hour, Harry and Meghan seem to be running out of cash. Harry! And Donald Trump says he's done absolutely nothing wrong, Governor. All that coming up next. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Good evening and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. You're with Talk. We're on TV, we're on radio, we're online and we're on your smart speaker as well. Coming up, Donald Trump backs away attempts to stop him running for president and Trump derangement syndrome is only fueling the Don's fire as he seeks a second term. Hard times for Harry and Meghan as their podcast and Netflix show flop. How long until they're completely skinned? And actress Gillian Anderson brings sex education to a new level at the Golden Globes in a graphically detailed dress. Get in touch with me. The Republic's phone lines and mail room are open for business. Call us on 0344 499 1000. Text the word TALK plus your message to 87222. Or you can tweet me at TalkTV using the hashtag IROMG. Now, it was former sub-postmistress Joe Hamilton who said it best. 
when former Post Office Chief Paula Venels finally caved into the pressure this afternoon and announced that she would be handing back that CBE with immediate effect. There was a collective sigh of relief that at last someone in this sorry saga had finally done the right thing. But it was Joe who was wrongfully convicted over 15 years ago of stealing thousands of pounds from the village shop she ran in Hampshire who nailed it, saying she was glad the honour had been handed back after a petition was signed by more than a million people and even Prime Minister Rishi Sunak had urged Venels to do it. Joe added, it's a shame it took just a million people to cripple her conscience. It shows the people have spoken about everything, really. It's not just about the CBE. It's about how disgusting the whole thing is. We're all sick and tired of people taking money, being paid exorbitant amounts of money, and politicians taking absolutely no notice of you whatsoever. I think the people are just sick of it. Well, how right she is. And how apposite are those words? The hateful eight, those high rollers who made so much money while persecuting and prosecuting honest, hard-working men and women in sub-post offices around the country, are still living high on the hog. Not for them, a life of ruin, of uncertainty, of damage, of sleepless nights. No. And Paula Venels is just one of those eight. After all, she was only given her CBE for services to the post office in 2019. The same year, postmasters were awarded £58 million for the false prosecutions on her watch. And what about the other seven people? There's Adam Crozier, Venel's predecessor, handed the chief executive role by Tony Blair in 2003 and earning over 15 million quid as he presided over the closure of 7,000 office branches. He's not even in the ITV drama, by the way. There's Alice Perkins, the wife of Labour grandee Jack Straw, who apologised for the deep distress she caused during her time at the helm, obfuscating the truth to politicians. Then there's the Prince of Darkness, Tim Parker, a notorious private equity tycoon who supported Venels in her battle with 555 sub-postmasters through the courts. Michael Keegan, husband of current Education Secretary Gillian Keegan, is another one. He was in charge of Fujitsu when their deeply flawed Horizon system was introduced. And Sir Ed Davey, of course, He's another name that continues to come up. The Lib Dem leader claims he was lied to as post office minister, but many people now believe he should resign for his lacklustre response to what was clearly a growing disaster. And finally, there is the gross twosome. Angela van der Borgen was in charge of handling complaints about Horizon and is blamed for much of the misery heaped on sub postmasters. And what about Canadian dame Moya Green, another chief executive? She earned over 11 million quid during her tenure as chief executive. This story still has plenty of road to run. But let's hope that today's events are the beginning of the end for all of these jokers, these fraudsters, these charlatans. Never again let them push the little people around. Justice is coming, and right soon. The Princess of Wales celebrates her 42nd birthday today. Many happy returns and will likely be hoping to break what has been branded her birthday curse. Kate's special day has been overshadowed by other national or royal scandals since 2020. Last year, it was the release of Harry's book Spare and the year before, it was the first coronavirus lockdown. To talk about the birthday girl and all things royal, I'm joined by the royal editor, Mr Robert Johnson. Robert, welcome to the new Independent Republic of Mike Graham in this brand new uh, setting that we've got. Very grand. You must pop in and see us. We've got some... Uh, I'm definitely going to pop in. We've got great. some beverages on the, on the table here for you, so, so we're hoping that might bring you in. Um, happy day for, uh, for, for Kate and, uh, and a reasonably happy day compared to last year, I suppose, uh, for the royals. Well, there were no announcements, there were no books, and there were no scandals, so it's pretty good for a <laughs> uh, Kate birthday. I think um, 
she she was it was quite a quiet day. She you know she would celebrate with her family and her kids. I mean, in many ways, she's the starlight of the, the royal family anyway. And I think that she doesn't really put a foot wrong. And there's all this um, claims from out the other side of the Atlantic that she's not very warm and that, and that she's you know she's steely and she's difficult. Fact is that Kate has been brilliant. I think over the last year or so, and just her dignified silence as all this nonsense has come her way is. Uh, speaks volumes. So, I mean, she's, uh, I'm sure the King is glad he's got her on a team. Yeah, I think so. Because there was a time, wasn't there, if you remember back to this time last year, that it looked as though the Harry and Meghan sort of um, part of the family was going to be a real problem. It was going to be a real nightmare. But actually, in the 12 months since, they've actually kind of faded into almost insignificance. And when we saw the Golden Globes, even the, 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 the sort of the cast of Suits making fun of Meghan, you kind of go, well, that's about as low as it gets, isn't it? Well, I think the sort of the train load of lies that were coming their way from from the Sussexes has just been found out. I mean, the reality is, you know, most of the things that have been said have just been proven to be complete nonsense yeah. and are easily proven to be nonsense. And I think that is the problem that Harry and Meghan have got, is that everything they seem to say just sort of falls apart on, on closer examination. Yeah. It's almost as though I kind of take it back to that, you know, supposed high-speed car chase in New York, which was so blatantly Absolutely a right. load of old uh, bollocks, I'm just going to say it right now, that clearly <laughs> um, everybody just went, hang on a minute, maybe everything else they've said is similar. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I remember being in America just slightly after that happened. And, Ameri- and you know, you've been, you, you know, you lived in New York, you know, yeah. New York, and uh, the idea of a high-speed <laughs> race in, in New York was ludicrous. And... and and I think the TV networks in America, in America had the, the taxi driver on the, on the TV and he yeah. just sort of completely shut it down in flames. Right. And I think that just made people, particularly New Yorkers, which is at the hub of, you know, the, the sort of all the whole TV world really over there, um, just, just thought it was ridiculous. Yeah. And from that moment on, they'd just been seen as sort of, sort of figures of, of, almost figures of fun really. Yeah. And you've, and you've watched this, this particular, you know, pantomime for many, many years um, a lot of people said at the time, shouldn't William and Kate come out and say something? And they've actually been quite smart because they didn't really, and they didn't really dignify a lot of the accusations with, with anything official, apart from when he said, you know, the royal family's not racist, which I think was the right thing to do. But they played a, a pretty decent uh, bat here, haven't they? I think so, and I think he was actually right to say this the royal family's not racist mm. as well when he did. But now to come out, um, as we've recently heard, you know, that it was supposed to be Prince Charles and and Kate, that are racist. I mean, I just don't see that. I don't recognise it. Yeah, OK, I'm a middle-aged, you know, white guy, and, a, you know, I, was, I can be accused of uh, all sorts of things, institutional racism, I suppose, whatever you call it, the unbiased, unbiased, unconscious bias whatever and all these is, things. Yeah. But I've covered this for 35 years, and, you know, the, the, the king in particular, you know, he's somebody that's worked, you know, hugely in communities and the Asian community and the and, and, and inner cities, and he's done so much for... Um, for, to, in, for interfaith relations. It's, ridic- it's just a ridiculous statement. And also, if you only have to watch Kate when she's out, you know, make, doing the, her daily jo- in the job in the streets, and right. she's, there's not a racist bone in her body. So I just think the whole thing has just been blown out of proportion. And it came from that appalling Oprah Winfrey interview. That, yeah. frankly, if you actually re examine that interview, I mean, you know, I'm surprised it hasn't been sort of banned from being right. completely inaccurate. I mean, it really is appalling that it came out like that. And they really, I think, Meghan and Harry, particularly Harry, should hang his head in shame for allowing it to carry on like yeah. that. Yeah. 
I think so. I think that was some, the, the, the final straw for an awful lot of people because they just couldn't quite believe that he particularly had allowed that situation to occur. But what happens next for them? I mean, um, you know, we've been hearing all day that things are not great for them right now in, in America. He's never going to run out of money. He's got that massive trust fund uh, that he was left by his mother. But, I mean, you know, they live a pretty extravagant life. They've got pretty expensive taste. You know, that house doesn't come cheap and presumably all those Cadillac Escalades don't, uh, don't come free and private jets they can borrow up to a point. But, you know, what will they do if they need to start making some proper money? Well, they're in America. It's an expensive place when you're that sort of top of the... You know, you're trying to be mingle with the stars. Um, I think that, you know, I'll never be poor. He's, he's in, he had a, a massive load of money that he inherited. But the point of it is they live a very expensive life. They've got their security system uh, guys in place. That's not cheap. They You know, they'd like to fly in private jets. That's even if you're... You know, at some stage, as you say, their friends are going to run out in terms of loaning it out for nothing. So... Mm. And they don't seem to be giving out an awful lot of money out of their charitable foundation. So I don't know. I think they're going to have to rethink what they're doing. Um, I can't see them coming back here. I can't see Megan ever coming back here. But I can't see Harry wanting to really um, be over here either. I mean, I was out today with a, someone quite close to the late Queen, and it was really upsetting to hear some of the stories about how upset she was about everything yeah. um, at the time of this going on, just before she passed away. And that she was in quite a lot of pain, and that she had she was suffering um, physically from what was going on, but it was a mental strain, mm. you know, the whole of this business that was going on, and clearly upset her at the end of what was a great reign. So I think really, looking in a few years' time, if he doesn't do it now, Harry in particular should be thinking, I really let I really let he not only let my family down, but he let the Queen down, and I think yeah. that was something he would have, he's going to live to regret. No, I think so. Stories around today that the Queen may have been the one that kind of suggested to Prince Andrew that he make whatever payment he did make to Virginia Giffray. Um, Piers Morgan tonight spoke uh, to Jeffrey Epstein's only yeah. living relative, Mark Epstein, um, and he told Talk TV exclusively he believes the paedophile financier was actually murdered by a powerful contact with a vested interest to keep him quiet. Have a look at this. Well, first, the, the actual pathologist who did the autopsy uh, did not determine it was a suicide. They couldn't. They said it looked more like a homicide. But on the, death, on the initial death certificate, on cause of death, it said pending, meaning pending further investigation, which is proper. And then a few days later, you know, Bill Barr claims it was a suicide. And then the chief pathologist of New York who did not see the body, claims it's a suicide. So the point, the question becomes, what investigating was done in a matter of days to make them come out with that determination? And it turns out that because it was called a suicide, there doesn't seem to have been an investigation. Because if you declare somebody died by suicide, there's really nothing to investigate. You know, the only questions about a suicide is, how did they do it? Did they hang themselves? Did they shoot themselves? Did they jump out of a window? And that's a pretty obvious answer at the time of the death. So there's no investigation was done. The EMTs that went to the prison were never questioned. The hospital personnel were never questioned. We can't seem to find the medical records. We can't get the 911 call. If this was a suicide, why are all these things hidden? Well, it's a pretty good question. And, I mean, we may never know the answer to, to these um, suggestions that there was foul play or there was some jiggery-pokery, skullduggery, whatever you want to call it, uh, involved in, in Epstein's death. But I wonder as well whether, Robert, um, 
it sort of helps Andrew in a way if this focus of, of whether Epstein was killed and whether it was Bill Clinton or Hillary Clinton or anybody in America, whether it was Bill Gates, you know, that kind of shoves it away from him, doesn't it? Well, to a degree, it changes the, the narrative. But, look, I remember when he first, it was the, the first um, reports of his death came out, there was a lot of talk about um, it being um, a possible murder. There was a lack of evidence. There was all sorts of things coming out at the time. Then it suddenly shut down. I think, as um, yeah. Jeffrey Epstein's brother has said there, when it was declared to be a suicide. Right. And there was no video. There was no video evidence. There was, it seems that... Um, there was reports that he was on suicide watch, but right. in a report that he did give to um, the, 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 um, the one of the, the, I think the psychotherapist that was watching him, um, said that he, why would I want to kill myself? I have a great life. And there was a sense that he was, with the money he had, he was going to fight very vigorously um, against this this latest claims that were against him. Because if you remember the first, I mean, I'm no way defending Jeffrey Epstein, but... The first um, reason he went to prison was because he did a deal. He did a deal with the authorities so that uh, he would get a lesser charge. And then there was he was looking to fight the, the, the next time by saying, well, you can't do me on the same charge. And yeah. it was, there was a lot of wranglings going on there. So I, I think that, uh, he, you know, he, he, he doesn't appear to be someone um, that was going to give up the ghost. But the, at the same time, he was placed on suicide watch. And yeah. there must have been a reason. A reason for that but it's a fascinating interview and something that we haven't really hasn't really been expanded upon um since his death no exactly right just uh, on a happier note to finish up the front page of the sun uh, we've just got hold of it coming out tomorrow uh, it talks about kate standing by uh, one of the postmasters she says i want justice for us all um postmaster backed by princess kate and her family uh, in his 10-year fight for justice is now demanding that every conviction is overturned you can see it there um, so that's a sort of a nice belated birthday present for Kate. Well, look, it's an incredible story, as you were pointing out earlier. Yeah. In the, uh, and I mean, we all watched that with with interest. And the fact that Kate is getting behind um, the postmasters, I think that's probably quite a, a good move. Um, yeah. The reality is, as you say, there's so many more questions to be asked, so many more people involved. And um, hopefully, uh, hopefully, Mr Bates will now get will accept his OBE now that he was offered... Yeah. Now that the CB has been handed back, but you know what I had, what surprised me with that whole story, you know, Kate is great back in it. Was didn't um, uh, the, the the CEO walk away not only with the CBE but like a four hundred thousand pound? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, gee, it's unbelievable the whole story. A very nice, yeah, very nice little pay, yeah. a very nice little pay packet to go away with, but also a couple of decent jobs that she got later on as well, including yeah. running an NHS trust. Robert, we've got to run. Great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed, Robert Great Johnson, to see you, Mike. Uh, the royal, the royal editor, the man to talk to when you need to know about the royals. Coming up though, uh, elections in America and Britain look like they might overlap this year. Across the pond, the incumbent president has creeped into life, getting up from his commode to start off his campaign. What? Uh, but to bring the dinosaur back to life, it seems as if Biden has been courting the Obamas for help. Joining me to discuss this deputy, his deputy editor of The Spectator, Mr Freddie Gray. Freddie, welcome to the Independent Republican, Mike Gray. Mike. Very good to see you uh, on the newly branded show. Um, fascinating times. You know, Biden decides to wander around um, some old battleground to decide uh, how, how he's going to kind of, you know, rattle the neighbours and rattle the uh, the doors and the windows of all the kind of old um, houses down in that part of Pennsylvania. And he's hopeful uh, that he's going to be able to convince anyone who supports Donald Trump that they should stop 
right? Because he's now telling them that if you support Donald Trump, you're clearly some kind of mad racist. Well, Joe Biden has been saying uh, the same thing uh, on repeat, stammering quite often, but on repeat uh, for about four or five years now. Um, and that is that he is standing for president because Donald Trump is a threat to American democracy. Yeah. Uh, you might remember there was a ridiculous speech, uh, not last year, just at the, end of, at the end of 2022, I think it was, um, where he stood in Pennsylvania, uh, kind of a sacred site of American democracy and in Pennsylvania, uh, with the ridiculous red lighting behind him, uh, and he gave this thunderous, it was meant to be thunderous anyway, thunderous speech about MAGA extremists, as he called them, yes. and uh, the threat that Donald Trump poses. Uh, and he did a very similar speech on Friday at Valley Forge uh, and another very similar speech on Monday um, in Carolina. And this is just going to be his message. It's going to be, I know, essentially, the pitch is, I know I'm not a very good president. I know that you're not happy with the economy, no matter how many times I tell you that the economy is great, but I'm not Donald Trump. Uh, and it worked for them. It worked for the Democrats in 2020. Will it work in 2024? I think that's a very different question. Well, this is the thing, because the sort of Trump derangement syndrome continues from four years ago, you know, fueled by uh, all the people that keep talking about, you know, Donald Trump must go to jail, you know, the insurrection on January the 6th is unforgivable, it's the only time that a sitting president has failed to hand over the powers. All of the accusations that are being made about Donald Trump most of which are not really stand up in court. Everybody knows that the 91 indictments against him are only doing one thing, and that's kind of fueling his power. You know, he's almost like he's become some kind of superhero, and every time you give him um, yet another indictment, it, it works like kryptonite in reverse. Yes, well, everything that doesn't kill him only makes him stronger. Yeah. Uh, and the person who seems to realise that most of all is Donald Trump. Right. Um, for instance, today... Uh, he could and arguably should have been in Iowa campaigning because there's the caucuses there next week that kick off uh, the election cycle. But instead, he was in court in D.C. He didn't have to be there. Right. Um, he chose to be there. He chose to make a spectacle of it because he knows um, that this trial, that's it's scheduled to march and he's appealing it on, on grounds of presidential immunity, he knows that that trial is headline news and he can make himself the story and make the race uh, for the Republican nomination, which really isn't a race anymore, right. it's more of a coronation, uh, he can turn that into a, a sideshow. And exactly so right. he, he relishes the opportunity to make these trials uh, the front and centre of, of, of American politics because he knows it works for him and right. the polls suggest that it does. And why is he, though, such a hated character? I mean, it's, a, it's an important question, I think, for people in this country to understand. I mean, we've seen a very small part of, of the way that Boris Johnson was affected in the same way by people who just hated him with such vitriol that they couldn't stand anything that he did. They couldn't admit that anything that he did was right. Um, you know, I, I've got family that live in America. I lived there a long time myself. You know, I, 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 even I still find it hard to believe quite how uh, polaxed and, pol and how polarised they all are. Well, I think it's also important to remember that he is deeply loved as well. Yeah. He's really revered uh, in America. I mean, 70 million people voted him, yeah. voted for him in 2020. Right. Um, and he and lost. I think, <laughs> and, and he lost somehow. Somehow. Uh, and I think that uh, the reason he is so hated um, is because of, um, to a large extent, what he says, which is that he is a threat to 
Washington, D.C., as it has run for the last few decades. Yeah. Um, and, you know, he uses ridiculous phrases like the deep state and so on. Um, but there is a deep state. It's not so much a deep state. It's, a, it's the, as Steve Bannon always says, it's the in-your-face state. Yeah. Uh, and that is determined to stop him. Uh, one of the ways in which it's trying to stop him uh, is through these legal persecutions. And one of the reasons these legal persecutions are are pursued in the way that they are is not just that Democrats want to stop Trump, it's that a lot of people want to stop Trump. Yes. And so a lot of people will go on with this legal circus, will even support this legal circus, even though you... everybody, honest, if they're being honest, everybody knows that this is a politically driven yeah. uh, persecution. Well, when you have as many as sort of eight to ten states now launching one form of personal uh, or private prosecution or state prosecution or federal prosecution based upon, you know, trying to stop him actually becoming president, now trying to even stop him running for president, you start to think, surely much of America must see this for what it is. I think they do. Uh, and I think a lot of independents who don't like Trump necessarily uh, do see the injustice of it. They see the absurdity yeah. of it. I mean, it's difficult for... I, I follow this for a living. Uh, and it's difficult to keep track of all the different cases right. now. Um, and I think... Uh, perhaps the, the biggest obstacle to, to Trump's uh, nomination and possible re-election um, is just the sheer exhaustion of people trying to keep up with it. These cases are complicated, a lot of them. Uh, a lot of them go back a long time, particularly the New York ones. Yeah. Um, and it's very hard to figure out, um, particularly when you're talking about something like presidential immunity as far as the Constitution is concerned. These are arcane, complicated legal arguments. Mm. And people just switch off at a certain point. So, you know, whereas in 2016, Trump was this incredibly ridiculous and exciting figure in many ways because he was so unheard of, in 2024, uh, it's possible that the reason he won't win is because people just switch off. Mm. Yeah. No, I think that's absolutely right. Freddie, good to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed. Freddie Gray from The Spectator there uh, giving us his view on why. People are so worked up about Donald Trump in America and why they will either absolutely cheer him to the rafters or would like to see him disappear altogether. Coming at you full force, this is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Coming up after the break, we're going to look at Chancellor Jeremy Hunt taking on money magician Martin Lewis and also how fundamental flaws turned Boeing's jumbo jet into a death trap. Strap yourselves into your seats. Welcome back. You're watching the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Chancellor Jeremy Hunt was grilled by money-saving expert Martin Lewis. Here's what the Chancellor had to say when he was quizzed about announcing tax cuts in an election year. Well, the main reason for doing it is because families are feeling massive pressure. We've had a cost-of-living crisis. Uh, although inflation is now below 4%, when I became Chancellor, it was over 11%. And people have really been feeling the pinch. So we wanted to bring it in as quickly as we could. Um, but the point I would make to your viewers is that after a period in which taxes have gone up in order to pay for the cost of the pandemic or the £3,500 of help we gave people in the cost of living crisis to a typical family, we now want to bring that tax burden back down. Now, we can't get all the way back to where we were pre-pandemic in one go, but we can make a start. And this is about £1,000, just under £1,000 for a typical two-earner family. 
Um, but we would like to go further as and when it's affordable and responsible to do so. Oh, really, Chancellor? Well, we shall see about that. I'm now joined by editor-at-large of The Money Mentor, Ms Georgie Frost. Georgie, welcome to the uh, newly improved uh, Independent Beautiful. Republic. Isn't it lovely? Yeah. It's such a nice place. I, I kind of it? feel like, you know, I want to... After the show ends, we should just hang around and have drinks and, exactly. you know, uh, pour out the, uh, the, uh, the Jack Daniels or whatever it is. Um, I can't say at the moment, but we will get down to that. Mm. Um, what is Jeremy Hunt doing? Why is he suddenly um, <laughs> giving interviews? He's not very good at interviews. He shouldn't give interviews. Yeah. He doesn't exude any kind of confidence. He doesn't exude for what I, any charisma to me. And he doesn't tell the truth either, it seems. Well, he gives interviews, I guess, because that's part of his job and, and mm. we potentially have an election coming yes. up. And I wouldn't have suggested that was a grilling by Martin Lewis. No. He had certain things on his agenda that he wanted to cross off. Mm. That one that you saw there was obviously covering the big sort of money news yes. of the week, which was the national insurance yes. cut. But then we went into... Which nobody understands, by the way. Do they? Well, what do you not understand? Well, I don't Mike? understand who gets it, and I don't understand why it's worth a 1,000 quid to people well, who are making something like 60,000 between them. Is that what it is? So it... I think you're talking about something else there. But there you go. Talk... Well, that's why I don't understand it. So, so explain look, it to me. OK, national insurance yeah. is essentially a second income tax, yes. essentially. Yes. So basically, you pay it in tranches. Those right. people who earn under about £12,500 don't pay anything. Right. Those people earning between twelve and a half and about 50000 used to pay 12%. Right. And those people who are earning on that proportion of your income, and if you earn more than that then you'll pay an extra 2% okay. additional. Right. So 14% top whack. Quite. Yes. But only on that proportion yep. above 50. So okay. it's tranches. So what the Chancellor said is for that 12% bid in the middle, we're going yeah. to reduce it to 10%. For everyone who's an employee, so that's 27 million people. Yeah. Everyone who's self-employed, including myself, that comes in April the 6th. Right. However, the problem Does is... Does it make any difference if you're self-employed then? You go down to 10% instead of 12? It's slightly different. It actually goes 9 to 8, right. but we won't get dragged right. into that. You will save so this is why I don't understand it. Well, so you will essentially have more in your take-home. But right. the issue, and what Martin Lewis was talking there, is something called fiscal drag. Yeah. So, of course, these thresholds that I was talking about, the 12 and a half, the 50, they've stayed in place and will stay in place until 2028. So they're freezing it. It's a stealth tax, yes. essentially. So if you earn more money or if you get more money because... National insurance is being cut. Yeah. What happens? You get pushed over into that extra threshold, right. so and you so pay you it pay else. more tax. Right. So by 2028, actually, even with the national insurance, you're likely to pay, they say, on average, about 440 pounds so more. This is what I meant when I said he doesn't really tell the truth, because when he says that people will be a thousand pounds better off, they actually won't be. Will they? No, absolutely. So that's not true. That isn't. That is. True in as much as this specific case yeah. of national insurance, but once you put everything together... Right. Now, look, what we're going to get from the Chancellor, which is very interesting, a very different Chancellor post the Liz Truss quasi Quarteng disastrous yeah. budget when we got schoolmaster yeah. hunt. Now we're getting the slightly more excitable, look, we might have growth, we might have some money mm. to give away, tax cuts. It doesn't wear that well as a Chancellor. It's right. not that kind of vivacious character. As long as he doesn't do that thing he did with the coffee cups. Do you remember that? Um, when he sat in a sort of, yes, you know... Yes, this is how you work coffee things shop out. Said, I felt like how... I was doing that with a fiscal yeah, bag, though, to be honest. Exactly. So I apologies about that. No, you were much clearer than him. 
Thank you very much. Cups. But it's like, what can we expect coming up? We have an election year. Martin Lewis asked him about, you know, why why did we get this sort of cut now? Right. January the 6th is very odd. Anyone in finance realises most stuff happens at the start of the tax yeah. year, which is April the 6th, which in itself is a bit odd. Mm. But either way, so why? So that we can feel it a little bit more, that benefit ahead of a tax year. Yeah. So, uh, look, the best thing that the Chancellor can do is, because we are on course still to have the highest tax burden since the Second World right. War, the best thing you can do is unfreeze those thresholds. They should go up in line with inflation. Other areas that he was talking about there, which was on, I guess, Martin Lewis's agenda, which is a lot of what people in this country want to see. Yeah. One of the big things is the child benefit quirk. That is the fact you can have two people within a two a couple earning 49,000 each and they they don't have to pay their child benefit back. But as soon as you start as an individual earner right. earning over 50,000, your child benefit gets taken away. Yes. So if you're a single parent household, then of course, and you're earning over 50,000 having to provide for right. your kids then you will get your thing tapered but off until 16 really and then I mean, you don't pay anything. They have to do it in some way, don't they? They have to make a delineation somewhere. So It should be a, dual, be a, a dual household it, income, I would imagine, yeah. would be fairer. Right. I don't um, think so, if you're making that kind of money, you should be getting child benefit at all. But, but how, I mean, well, in, just London, do away with it. in London, three kids on 50,000? Well, don't have three kids in London. Well, there, there is that argument, you know? but I think the ship might have sailed for many people. The other issue is broadband and mobile phone. Oh, yes. yes, we all know. My broadband's awful at home. I can't tell you how bad it is. And and you know what? You will be paying above inflation yeah. rises, guarantee it. Last year, we were paying on average 17% mm. because for some reason, they're allowed to get away with the fact that mid-contract, yeah. they can raise how much you pay by inflation plus about 3 or right. 4%. Let's just get rid of that 3 or 4%. Well, I remember it's when not I signed fair. up to this particular mob that I've got at the moment, I'm not going to say who they are, um, it was good for a while, then it got just as bad as it always had been. But I'm now paying about twice as much as I was paying when I signed up to it yes. about five years ago. Exactly. I mean, it's not ridiculous, but it's still more money than it was. Every penny at the moment, cost of living crisis, the chance of us talking about it, actually really does help. So, yeah. you know, that would be a, a big thing. And it's just it's just unfair. A lot of these things that the Chancellor and Martin Lewis were talking about were quirks in the system that just feel a little bit unfair. Yeah. Standing charges on energy. Yeah. I mean, you can use no energy, but you're still forking out about right. £300 a year. So people who are cutting back still seeing them having to pay having to a pay, lot more exactly in, right. in standing charge, which, by the way, is essentially what you pay to keep maintenance. It's just, sort of like, yeah, yeah, just to have it. The optical fibre, as it were, yeah. exactly. And for I maintenance mean, of the system ridiculous. and stuff. So it's, it's the same thing. I'm going to give you a yes or no answer for this, because I'm, otherwise I'm, I'm going to be in trouble. Um, will they cut taxes even more before the next election? I, I imagine, yes, we'll probably get some uh, announcements happening. Uh, March the 6th is when the budget is going to take place. Right. The Chancellor is going to use every inch of fiscal headroom that he may have and probably even more that he doesn't have uh, to try and give away, you know, the, the, as he said, he's a conservative. The last thing they want is a high tax burden yeah. and we are here in this situation. Will it work? I don't know. But I imagine things that like, I would very, like to see the fiscal... That is a very long yes or no answer. I'm sorry. So what was, yes, possibly. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. possibly. Yes. Two. Two words. There <laughs> yes. you go. Georgie Frost, thank you very much indeed. <laughs> now, lots of you have been getting in touch. You can have your say on all the socials at Talk TV and, of course, on the phones, 0344-499-1000. Let's now hear uh, from Mick in Fife. He wants to talk about Ed Davey, or Sir Ed Davey, shall we say. Mick, what yes. do you want to tell me? Yeah, Sir Ed Davey, yeah. <laughs> um... Well, he was interviewed uh, a couple of weeks ago, well, uh, within a week, and said that he, if he knew then what he knows now, and that if he was lied, and that he was lied to by the Royal Mail, 
It just doesn't cut any ice with me, Mike, because there was one man that could have helped him put things straight, and that was Alan Bates. And he refused to see him, I believe, on at least three occasions. This guy... Oh, and then, then he had the cheek a week ago to, to wish Alan Bates well in his quest. It's unbelievable. This guy is either incompetent or complicit. It's as simple as that. And he should resign. He should hand back his knighthood. And how can he carry on into a general election as leader of the Lib Dems? I mean, they'll lose the few seats that they have now. It just beggars belief. He's got to go. And the other thing, Mike, is it was I'm not quite clear on it, but I think it was about 15 odd years ago. I believe there was a bit of a hoo-ha with the Royal Mail because they raided the pension fund. Yes, I think they did. Yeah, it was something like that. I don't know exactly. Um, well, all the chief executives uh, it, it, that worked there have removed millions and millions of pounds from the coffers, and all of the union guys I ever speak to say that they've completely ruined it by trying to kind of remodel it in the shape of some kind of ridiculous commercial organisation, which it isn't. It's never going to make money, and I'm afraid um, it's now looking more and more like it's not fit for purpose. So what do you think with Ed Davey, then? You don't think he should even be an MP anymore? I think he is... I've got to say it. I think he's a rancid creature. <laughs> it's as simple as that. Yep. And he's he's got to go, Mike. And if the Lib, Lib Dems don't do do something with him, get rid of him, then I can't see... I mean, if that is the case, the Lib Dems would be as bad as he is. Yep. I think it's a bloody disgrace, mate. I really do. Yes, listen, very well said. Thank you very much indeed. I think you're absolutely right to say it. John uh, is in West Lothian, wants to talk about the post office as well. John, very good evening to you. Good evening, Mike. Yeah. Um, very nice set. And, Thank and you. May I, may I say that uh, I hope that your decanter's full of a nice malt whiskey. <laughs> well, you know, I'm, uh, I'm actually lobbying for a variety of different beverages to be put into it. Um, and we're still in talks, is all I can say about that. All right. Well, I hope you, I hope you win. <laughs> um, I usually just, do. Yeah. Just on the, the post office situation, I think the uh, fiasco about the chief exec CBE is, is a sideline and totally unimportant. Um, I think what, what's serious here is what's happened with the board of directors of the post office over many years. And I don't think there is any of them that can say that their hands are clean. No. Because let's be honest, a board of directors of, a, of an organisation that size has directors with portfolio responsibilities. You've got an IT director who is responsible for... Uh, getting contracts for, you know, the IT systems for that company. That cannot be signed off as an individual. That has to go in front of a board of directors, so everybody must know about it. The finance director must know about it. And then, once you get into the situation where it was obviously going wrong, you have the situation where um, the legal director has, or company secretary, whichever way they, they, they structured it, um, has approved taking these people to court. Yeah. No, and, listen, and I, there is no end to the numbers of people who are guilty of something in this, um, John, and we're going to keep chasing them until we get some uh, actual satisfaction. But thank you uh, for your call. We've got to move on because we're running rather late. I don't want to get into any trouble because I'm supposed to be in charge here. Um, let's talk about Gillian Anderson, right? She's a star of sex education. Um, she was at the Golden Globes the other night. She's decided to take her role as a sex therapist to a whole new level because we're going to show you a picture uh, of the dress that she wore, uh, which is covered in what it says here is vulvas. 
Um, it's actually a vagina. For some reason, she's decided to become uh, this kind of uh, advocate um, of the, is it the Yanis or the Uris or something like that? It's a Greek word for, for vulva. Anyway, joining me to explain all of this, <laughs> Talk TV's contributor, Esther Kraku, the Sun's political editor, uh, deputy police editor, Ryan Savior, now broadcaster journalist, Emma Wolf. Welcome to the show. Um, this was one of those sort of off-to-the-side things from the yeah. Golden Globes. We heard all about Taylor Swift. We heard all about the gossip about, um, you know, Kylie Jenner. We heard all about the Mickey-taking that was going on with Harry and Meghan. Suddenly this pops up, and if you look closely at the dress... It's quite a weird-looking thing. She's wearing a vagina dress. She's wearing a vagina dress, um, and she's quite open about it. She's quite happy to repeat why she's doing it, um, and it's all about sort of promoting women's sexual health, apparently. Women are, Hollywood is full of strange It's people. full of very odd people. Like, seriously, from Gwyneth Paltrow's vagina-scented candle, yeah. which I, I will never get over. No, so somehow I'm never being, buying one. Well, yeah, I don't think I don't imagine hers will smell very good. Anyway, um, to That's this being... <laughs> To this being some sort of beacon of female empowerment, yeah. to have your genitalia. I mean, I, I mean, why does female empowerment boil down to literally your vagina? What, I, what is so empower, empowering about that? It comes standard with every model. I mean, it's not even shocking. It's just kind of lame. It's, it's, I, mean, I don't know what you think. I think it's quite a clever idea. We're all talking about, I think we're talking about it. If it yeah, but you're not going to go out and buy your no, wife not, no, a dress that's got vaginas on it. No, right? I, think, I think you're probably never going to Unless you're trying to get rid of her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Emma, you've gone very quiet. I've never seen you so quiet. I just am completely baffled by this. Is it just one of those things where, like, you look at a pomegranate and then you say, aha, but is it really a vagina? No, this is definitely a vagina because she talks about it. patterns and stuff about, on her dress. On, apparently on, this, on, on her Instagram, she's constantly talking about the power of the... Um, it was like when they all turned up at the Met Ball wearing, like, a black plastic bag. Oh, kind yeah. of, You know, they were grieving for something or other. Yeah. Utterly ludicrous. Yeah, it's, it's like a Yanis or some kind of Greek word. Anyway, never mind. Um, we've got plenty of other things to talk about, of course, and we should talk about, first of all, uh, the big story tonight on Piers Morgan Uncensored, um, Jeffrey Epstein's brother saying that he thinks Jeffrey Epstein was murdered. Oh, shock. You saw the interview. I mean, what do you make of it? Well, I mean, I think anyone with half a brain knows that if you're in a security prison and somehow you wound up dead with your bedsheet around your neck and the cameras around your cell somehow just magically stop working at the right. precise moment that you happen to have had your life taken, uh, there's something fishy going on. I mean, his brother said that the no, um, because of his death was ruled a suicide, um, they're still waiting for a coroner's report because yeah. he's been treated. It's a long time to wait, isn't e- it? Exactly. I mean, uh, look, it's clearly there's been foul play here. Uh, the extent to which I'm not sure because that's not my area of expertise, but this is nothing new. Um, it is it is saying something, though, that his own brother is coming out to say it. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that that's quite... Well, the, um, the thing is, if you're on suicide watch, presumably somebody's supposed to be watching you. Exactly. If you've got... There should be cameras in there. There should be someone checking it every 10 to mm. 15 minutes mm. um, all, the, all the way through the night. So the fact that that didn't happen... Uh, it does raise serious questions, and he talks about how is that discrepancy at the beginning with the coroner's report, how there was a situation where it was pending right. and should have been investigated further. It just raises a whole lot of questions. It does. And, I mean, do you, like me, Emma, think that with all of the focus in America on um, other figures, shall we say, like Bill Clinton, um, like um, uh, Stephen Hawking, various others who have been supposedly visiting um, this island in the Caribbean, um, does it take it away from... From Britain, to some extent, does it take it away from Andrew? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, it has been a distraction these past few days with other names, many, many other names. Yeah, loads. Out, many of whom, like Cameron Diaz and Oprah Winfrey and stuff, who aren't even, you know, I don't yeah. think anyone is suggesting that they went and no. tried to proposition 12-year-old girls, but it just just names within yeah. these court documents. Um, but I think, no, I think in this country, there's still a lot of anticipation about what might, what further might come out 
you know, with Prince Andrew and also just for us, how the king is going to deal with that, whether he will boot him out, finally get yeah. him, you know, dragging the trouble is fingernails, the dragging down the doors of Royal scandalous. Lodge, whether he's going to yeah. hang on there, yeah. really whether whether he should be living at all at the taxpayer's expense, yeah. given security and all of that. So I think, right. I think that Andrew, who famously doesn't, can't sweat, I would have thought he's been sweating quite a lot over the <laughs> yeah. past few maybe, weeks. Uh, maybe, Harry, maybe Harry could give him one of his um, well, nine mansions. Bedrooms. Yeah, I rewatched that Emily Maitlis interview, and it still makes me so angry. Yeah, the, the complete lack of judgment and the entitlement on, on the part of this man. Look, at the end of the day, I think if you're talking about the real threat to the monarchy, it's Prince Andrew. Yeah. He, he is the biggest threat. I mean, there's no justification for having him live the kind of life that he does. He needs to be banished to a village in India. And he needs to volunteer. What have they done to deserve it? I mean, I mean, he need, uh, listen. He can wear a disguise. And he needs to volunteer forever and ever. I mean, yeah. No, put him on the Bibby Stockholm. Uh, yeah, that works. Oh. Works for me. There's some speculation. Village in India sounds rather wonderful. Well, I mean, <laughs> yes, but uh, he, he wouldn't have much of a choice of coming back. I imagine that's the whole point. I think the Arctic or somewhere would be better. <laughs> the Arctic. You know, ice station zebra or something like but that. There's some speculation earlier today that he should have fought the, the, the court case. He yeah. might well have won. I mean, I'm not sure whether the rest yeah. of the royal family would have wanted him to do that. I wouldn't be taking advice from that lawyer, whoever that was. <laughs> uh, anyway, listen, this is the unchained, unstoppable independent republic of Mike Graham. Uh, coming up in the final bit, we're going to look at Just Stop Oil's call for a 2024 of violence, plus the hottest stories in all the papers tomorrow. Stay exactly where you are. Welcome back. You're watching the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Now, it's time for this. It might be a brand new year, but you won't be surprised to hear that some things just do not change. I'm afraid I've got some bad news. Just Stop Oil are back. Christmas holidays are over, those jail terms must have run out, and little darlings are intent on causing some more trouble. Today, believe it or not, they had a meeting with the Metropolitan Police in London, not to work out a new form of peaceful protest that might not disrupt Londoners going about their lawful business. No, nothing as important as that. And not even an information exchange that might help the police to know what they're planning for the next six months. No, these champagne socialists decided it would be a good time to inform the cops about who they should arrest and why. That's right. Indigo Rumbelow, I kid you not, Eben Lazarus, also a real name, and Sarah Lunnan were so obsessed with saving the planet that they basically used the meeting to demand the arrest of Prime Minister Rishi Sunak and a host of top businessmen for crimes against Article 30 of the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court. And if you're wondering what they've done, that's got soppy Sarah so upset. Here it is. By developing new oil and gas projects, the activities of the British government constitute an act of genocide by oblique intent. Well, I never. Who knew? The government guilty of genocide. That word seems to be getting bandied around a lot at the moment. Luckily, even the woke Metropolitan Police are a bit busy to start charging around the city of London, arresting dozens of people on trumped-up nonsense charges. Also, they're a bit occupied investigating war crimes in Gaza at the moment. Indigo and Eben left the meeting a little deflated, but happy that their ridiculous views are actually being listened to by the powers that be. Menacingly, though, they added that the police should expect violence this year as more and more eco-nutters insist we are in danger of floods, fires and famines. Give me strength. I mean, where are those water cannon when you need them? Presumably, we can look forward to more bloody-mindedness from the eco-warriors, but we'll have to wait for them to get it a bit warmer first, because that is their world of woke. Blimey, what an absolute 
rubbish collection of people they really are. Uh, the panel's back with me. Um, Esther's here, Emma's here, Ryan as well. We should kick off. We haven't got loads of time. The Sun front page, um, a twist on the post office uh, scandal. Kate stood by me. Now I want justice for us all. Ryan, you've got a little story for us. Yeah, no, ex exactly. I um, actually went to see um, Mr Shingadia back in May 2011 when he was facing accusations of stealing £16,000 from the post office. Right. Um, I remember very vividly at the time he said, he said to me, no comment, but I, I'm innocent. Right. And, uh, and, and we, we go right up till um, today where he's spoken to us and we, we reveal that he's had his, uh, his, you know, his, his conviction overturned and the Middleton family stuck by him every single step of the way. And they actually had a celebratory party when his conviction was overturned wow. with the Middletons attending. So it's an absolute fascinating story. And it just shows you... Everyone has a, a pillar of the community like this, yes. even the Middletons, and they are that. This Amazing. is what these, this is what these, these sub uh, sub postmasters they represent. They yeah. are that absolute central point that the that the community yeah. look up to. And, and that's why it sort of didn't didn't it wasn't sexy at the time because yeah. they do they just run the post offices up and down the right. country in towns and villages. Mm. But also it's it's why now people really care about it because mm. oh, yeah they've seen the ITV drama, but because it's real stories, isn't it? It's yeah. real individual stories. Yeah. Well, I think what the drama's done is it's brought the individual stories out, yeah. which which clearly not everybody paid that Some much attention to. Some of them are so the sad, time. aren't they? I mean, they really people are. People that lost their lives over yeah. this. This guy attended the royal wedding. Yeah. There's pictures of him. You'll see inside the paper uh, tomorrow when we get those pages. He, he's there in his finery with his yeah. wife and he's attending there. He's with the, the, the great and the good of society. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean the mirror's got, this. mirror's got a slightly different take. They've got innocent Peter lost his life. and It's a widow uh, called Marion Holmes. She said her husband Peter died in 2015 when he was still considered a criminal over false claims. Um, she says that nevertheless, despite the fact that Paula Venables has given back her CBE, Fujitsu is still making 100 million a year from yeah. taxpayers. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, that's, shocking. It's, the, the frustrating thing is, it has it's taken stories like this coming out, and obviously uh, this kind of drama being created around it for people to really wake up and for, for things to be expedited in the way that it should have been done yeah. before. I mean, for, between 2013 and 2019, to, to, to now have some real traction on this is it's just infuriating. Yeah. But it's also clear that government, the awarding of these government contracts really needs... I mean, we know this anyway from the PPE scandal, yeah, yeah. from the whole COVID kind of, you know, money fest. But, but yeah, they, these government but contracts ludicrous. need re Well, when I discovered... Um, that Fujitsu have also got the contract to be in charge of the flood alerts in this country. <laughs> you start to wonder, <laughs> well, why? Sense. no wonder the place is bloody underwater. Um, the Telegraph also have got a different version of it. Gareth Jenkins, who's apparently the guy behind developing the software at Fujitsu, um, is also asking uh, for some kind of immunity. He wants to give testimony to the inquiry, but yeah. he wants to be promised that nothing bad will happen to him. He should be able to do that, should he? Well, I mean, I think in, in the interest of the inquiry, I can understand why he should receive some sort of immunity to actually give information that would prevent this from happening. Um, but I, I, I think he should rest assured that responsibility wouldn't fall solely on his... Well, no, but he's also responsible for previously giving testimony in many of the court cases to say assuredly that there was nothing wrong with well, the that, software. If, if, if he well, lied, but that, he that's if he lied. If, if he, because if he genuinely thought that at the well, time, then that's fine. But if, if he, he lied, lied in court it, cases, surely that's a perjury. Yeah, that's offense, perjury, and, 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 and that's, jail, that's, that's that's that's. Mike, you know what will happen next? He'll be too ill to appear in yeah. court. Of he'll get he Alzheimer's will. or something. Yeah, but he'll be. Yeah, he'll. I think he can reveal the truth. If there's some sort of deal that can be struck, he can reveal that bosses knew this or bosses knew that. I think that perhaps there could be some sort of arrangement reached. Yes. 
What do you make of the mini what? Macron, Emma? Let me ask you about him. Uh, he is Mr. Gabriel Attal, uh, who's the youngest prime minister, apparently, that France has ever had. Um, they're saying he's openly gay, don't care. Um, but they're saying he was chosen by uh, Mr. Macron, Emmanuel Macron, uh, to head up the government at a very tense time. And he but does look a bit like him. They look very similar, don't they? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah well, it's good that he's, that, you know, they have a high-profile figure who's openly gay and that that's not a big deal. And... Well, I mean, the reason why he's been chosen is actually because he's more popular than uh, Marine mm. Le Pen. And um, I think that's, he's trying to put a wedge between... They're trying uh, to stop that from the, You know, the centre and the centre-right, yeah. effectively. Um, right. I don't think his sexuality has anything to do with it, but if he marries a woman almost three times his age, then that might change the conversation. <laughs> yeah, Who knows? So, final one for you guys. Um, vegetarians are less likely to get COVID. I don't know if that's true, um, but I know at least one of you is a vegetarian. Emma? I am. Did you get COVID? Wait, wait, oh, wait. Well, I'm waiting for the abuse. Why? Well, because You're not going to get abuse, abuse in the studio no. for being vegetarian. No, no, cycling. absolute rubbish. Oh, we not haven't true. done it properly today. That's not true. Um, yeah, well, I, I said vegetarians and vegans. I had COVID very mildly, like once, way back at the start, and I haven't had it since. Yeah. So, yeah, maybe. So, it's people, uh, University of Brazil study, <laughs> people whose uh, diets were mainly plant-based had low rates of infection with the coronavirus and less likely to report severe symptoms if they did succumb. Well, I, I suspect it's because vegetarians probably lead a more a health, slightly healthier lifestyle, so they're less likely to have the kind of factors that aggravated... They might be less like, fat, in other words. Pretty much, is what yeah. you're trying to yeah, say. Yeah, that's it. I mm -hmm. see. Well, that oh, may be true. Actually, I've never seen a fat vegetarian. I have, but no. not, they don't yeah. tend to be like... like uh, they don't need to be that big. Yeah. You've got to eat a lot of plant burgers, haven't you, to get... Yeah, to get that big. Larger if you're a vegetarian. Or cheese. Cheese, all right. Mm. Anyway, listen, uh, great to see you all. Um, good to end on a scientific subject. Exactly. Um, with with our scientific basis. expertise. Exactly. Um, but that, I'm afraid, is all from me tonight. You've been watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Thank you to all my guests. I'll see you tomorrow uh, at 9pm. Only here on Talk TV. I think I'm going to have a drink, because here we are. It's time. See ya. Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out for a chance to win the French Open title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV, live in HD. Don't miss a moment with daily live coverage and match replays on demand, beginning Monday, May 20th. Be there for all the unforgettable moments. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus.